Welcome to Soma Northwest again. My name is Bobby. I'm one of the pastors here. And if you have been around Soma Church at large uh, any length of time, if you have uh, visited our website at uh, any point in your journey with Soma Church to kind of see what we're about, who we are, you will see a phrase that comes up over and over and over again. It's, it's really our vision. It's our purpose. It's why we exist as a church. And it is this. It's very simple. We believe as a church that the gospel changes everything, that the gospel changes our neighborhoods, that the gospel changes our city. We believe that the gospel has the power to bring transformation and change to our entire world. And thankfully, and by God's grace, in our existence as a church, we have been able to see the gospel bring that change, bring that transformation into our neighborhoods, into our city on a very local level. I mean, just this gathering here, we have people from all over the city of Indianapolis. We have people that are involved in uh, not only bringing the message of Jesus to people in this city, but also extending the mercy of Jesus as well, meeting needs, uh, uh, helping people who are abused and marginalized. We have seen uh, time and time again the power of the gospel of Jesus Christ do good work in this city and bring change and bring transformation, bringing people from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light. And we celebrate that, and we wanna, we're going to continue to be about that. But one of the things as a church that we have, we have realized that, that we are a young church, we're a, a toddler church in a lot of ways, and specifically here at Northwest, we are still in the infant stages. We're just a year old. Uh, we're still getting our feet under us. But we do feel that, that, that pull and that vision to seeing not only the gospel change what's going on locally here in our city, but we want to be involved in bringing the gospel and supporting the work of the message and mercy of Jesus around the world. And so, as you know, each year we have what we call an Advent offering. So during our, our month of Advent here, the December months, as we celebrate, as we remember the, the first coming of Jesus, as we look towards the second coming of Jesus, each year we as a church kind of rally around a, a ministry, a mission that fits within this gospel changes everything mindset and beliefs that we can support. And this year, as we think about where we're going as a church and where we believe God is leading us to here, even in the next few years, we want as a church to begin moving in a direction where we are talking about global missions, uh, where we are thinking about global missions, where we are, are supporting the work of missions across the world, where we are training and equipping even some of you in this congregation that God may call to go overseas to take the message and the mercy of Jesus to people in other parts of the world. And so with that, we in our Advent offering this year, we are praying and we are, are asking God amongst our congregations collectively to raise $30,000. Uh, and specifically here in Northwest, our goal is to raise $5,000 of that $30,000 from this congregation. And when we think about that, we envision this money across all of our congregations. We're kind of using the term seed money. And what that means is that we hope that the money that we raise through the Advent offering this year will be a seed that will help us with the following as we think about global missions. We want to increase our global, um, the, the, the input and the um, training and the equipping of deacons that we have in our congregations to specifically help guide and equip and, and train and direct our church in the work of global missions. Uh, we are uh, some of Midtown, some of Downtown. They have some deacons that they've raised up in the last year. Some of Northwest, we would also like to have some deacons, some men, women who would step in and say, this is a way that I would love to serve this body 
of Soma Northwest and helping us begin to think about and begin to enter in what would it look like for us as a church community to step into global mission. So if that's you, if that is something that the Lord has laid on your heart, if that's something that you even have experience in, uh, in your past, we would love to talk to you about maybe stepping into a role like that and beginning to help our congregation specifically. So this seed money would increase our global missions deacon fund that will help resource these deacons with training our congregations, planning, um, structure building. Uh, when we think about like, how is it that we're going to step into this? We don't want to be haphazard. We don't want to just start throwing money and people at any and everything, but how can we be wise in this? How can we be good stewards uh, of this vision and also the resources that we have? Um, secondly, we want to organize prayer teams, care teams that are available for communication and encourages and encouragement for missionaries that we may send from our body, but also missionaries and mission organizations that we will maybe potentially partner with in the future. So how can we not only just say, hey, here's our money, uh, you guys go do what you're doing, but how can we as a church provide support in prayer, support in caring for missionaries that are on the field, and then coming back um, and transitioning back into life here in the States. Thirdly, um, we would love to talk about and subsidize short-term mission trips for our congregation to actually help, not like Christian tourism trips overseas, but actually where those of you could go to a missionary that we have a relationship with, that we support, and say, we can bring a team of people for one week, two weeks, and we can actually serve. We can provide support and encouragement to what God uh, is already doing through these missionaries that we will partner with in the future in their location. And then lastly, as I mentioned, we want to send out missionaries from our congregations. We want this to be a place where as God is moving in your heart and saying, maybe it could be you going overseas uh, to bring the message and the mercy of Jesus. We want to be a place that can resource you and that can train you and equip you and help you as you move in that direction. And we also want to be a church that supports existing missionaries as well. And so part of our seed money this year is going to support um, a specific missionary couple that has a relationship here with Soma Northwest. Chris, if you could put their uh, picture up on the skip screen. Some of you know Gary and Linda McCammon. Um, they work with an organization called Encompass World Partners. Um, some of you have met Gary and Linda. They have um, come several times to uh, Soma Church. They've um, taught workshops. They've counseled and encouraged uh, some of our leaders here. Gary actually preached at Soma Downtown a few weeks ago and was just able to encourage the Soma Downtown congregation as well. Um, Gary and Linda are currently involved in the work of training and equipping and sending missionaries um, overseas. And so it's an important work. Um, they are counseling, they are caring for missionaries who are on the ground in various locations around the world. And so because of our relationship with Gary and Linda, because we believe in the work that they're doing, and also because of the encouragement that they've been to many of us in our congregation and continue to be, um, we want to say thank you by being able to give some of our Advent offering to them just as a way of encouragement and in a way, as a way of support for their ministry. So in our giving time, um, after we take communion this morning, you'll see that there are some Advent offering envelopes on your seat. If you would like to give a special gift to this specific, specific offering fund, you can use that envelope. Um, you can also go online to our website. We actually uh, just this past week completely redesigned our website. It's awesome. It's way more helpful than it was before. Uh, it looks really great, but there's a tab on our website, a giving tab, and you can find the Advent offering there, um, and I would encourage you uh, to use that as well. So you can drop those envelopes in the basket. We will have these envelopes. We will have this Advent offering fund uh, open all month. Um, next week actually is our target week 
uh, for giving. So if you would like to bring your gift next week and actually physically give it in those envelopes, that would be great. This is kind of the week that all of our congregations were saying, like, why don't we shoot for December 9th to be our target giving week? But know that you can give anytime. You can give before that. You can give after that. Um, and if you have questions, more questions about how we're using this money, and even maybe uh, this scratches an itch that you have um, for global missions, and, and you're curious, and you feel like maybe this is a way that you can serve our church, I would love to talk to you more about that. So um, let me just pray for us. I want to pray for this offering. I want to ask God that he would use the money that you generously give um, to this Advent offering over the next month, that he would use it and that we would be wise in the way that we use it and that this would really truly be seed money, that out of this offering we would see a real growth within our church uh, in this specific uh, area of global missions. Global missions isn't a separate ministry of the church. This is what we are called to do. This is what we are called to do. Uh, global missions includes Indianapolis. And so what we're saying is we have seen good work done here in the city, and now we want to begin to look outside of our city and see what God may have us, uh, the work that God may have us to do in the coming years. So would you pray with me and pray for this offering? God, we are humbled that you have called us into this work. Um, we think about the fact that here in our country, in our city, um, that this is just a small part of your kingdom work. What we experience here on Sunday morning, we also know that in the last 24 hours that millions of Christians around the world have been worshiping you, have been gathering together, uh, sometimes in secret, sometimes under threat of persecution, um, sometimes in freedom. Uh, to worship you and to honor you as God. And yet we also know that there are so many more who need to hear the message of Jesus Christ, who need to understand and be brought to a place of seeing that life with God under the rule of God is truly satisfying, is truly what we as human beings were meant to experience. And so I pray that as we give over the next month and specifically direct these funds towards um, seeing the gospel go around the world, I pray that you would use these funds in a real way. I pray that we would be wise as we connect with missionaries, that, we, um, that you would lead us and guide us to missionary organizations and specific missionaries that we can build relationships with and support. I pray that people here this morning that in this congregation, you would call people, men and women, boys and girls here to go, to go to the ends of the earth, to bring the gospel to people and to places that so desperately need it. We thank you for the resources that you've given us. We thank you for the generosity that you have shown us and the blessings that you have given us. And I pray that as, um, uh, as a church, as we practice generosity, through this Advent offering, that you would bless it and that you would grow our church because of it in health um, and in commitment and in unity together. And we pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. So, yes, uh, as Deb led us this morning, this is Advent. This is the Christmas season that we begin to celebrate. And I don't know if there's anything that announces the Christmas season more to us than the number of lights that go up in our city, right? I mean, lights are such a huge deal. Just think about Indianapolis. Think about the thousands of people who turned out last week down at Monument Circle to see the, 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 the monument tree lit. Think about um, the lights at the Motor Speedway that you can take a second mortgage out on your house to go drive around. And I mean, seriously, like to go drive around and see these lights and have fun experiencing those lights. You can go to Winter Lights at the, at the Art Museum and experience that. You can go up to, was it Reynolds Farm Equipment up in Fishers and you can drive around that big display. All around our city, there are just lights, colored lights, white lights, beautiful lights, light displays. I mean, you drive through different neighborhoods and it just lights up 
that those areas of town, people that go above and beyond. You know, you've got the Clark Griswolds who get out and like, I mean, 500,000 lights on their houses. And we know it's Christmas time because of all of these lights and lights on the trees, lights in our houses. The beauty, we enjoy the beauty of these lights. We enjoy the warmth and the pleasure of of kind of getting cozy in our home and turning the, the light on in our Christmas tree. And we gather around these lights. And for hundreds and hundreds of years, the church has celebrated Advent and the Christmas season through lights. And it's not just a coincidence or it's not just some thing that we picked out of thin air. It's the lights are symbolic. The lights are symbolic of the message that we talk about during this time of year, what we celebrate, what we remember, what we look forward to. And it really is hard to grasp all of the truths that we talk about over these weeks of Advent and Christmas if we don't first grasp this one, that this world is a dark, dark place. And we will never be able to truly see apart from the light of Jesus Christ. This world is a dark place, and we will never be able to see it apart from the light of Jesus Christ. And so I want you to turn with me this morning to Isaiah chapter 9. Isaiah chapter 9. If you're using one of the Bibles around you, you can find that on page 331. And over the course of the next few weeks leading up to Christmas, we are going to spend some time here in the book of Isaiah. We are going to be reading the words of the prophet Isaiah to God's Old Testament people, words of judgment, but also words of hope and words of life. Isaiah chapter 9, a familiar passage that we often read uh, at this time of year. Isaiah chapter 9, starting in verse 1. Isaiah prophesies, but there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time, he has made glorious the way of the sea the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwell in the land of deep darkness, on them a light has shone. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Before we can talk about the darkness, we have to, to talk, or excuse me, before we talk about the light, we have to talk about the absence of that light, the darkness that Isaiah refers to here. And so let me give you a little bit of context here to what Isaiah is talking about. Back in this time, the Old Testament people of God were divided into two nations, a nation that was called the Northern Kingdom, Israel, and a nation that was called the Southern Kingdom of Judah. And both of these nations were the people of God, but the northern kingdom had split away because they didn't want to follow God anymore. They had rebelled against God. They had uh, kings who were idol worshipers who did not want to worship Yahweh. They had made alliances with pagan nations around them to say, we believe in your help. We trust you more. We believe in the safety that we have with you more than we believe in what Yahweh can provide us. And this Galilee that Isaiah refers to here is a region in the southern kingdom of Judah. The southern kingdom of Judah was kind of a mixed bag. Sometimes they had kings who were righteous kings and good kings and kings who wanted to worship Yahweh and follow Yahweh and led the people in that direction. And other times they had kings who were just as wicked as the northern kingdom of Israel. And Isaiah is prophesying during a time here where there was a king who did not want to serve Yahweh. And Galilee, this southern kingdom of Judah, is under oppression. Oppression from a neighboring kingdom called Assyria. Now, the northern kingdom of Israel, wicked, 
rebelling against God, had aligned themselves with another nation called Syria, different from Assyria. They had aligned themselves. They had formed this pact, this agreement with this nation of Syria because Assyria was a powerful kingdom. They were rising in power and wealth. And just as a lot of these nations did at this period of time, they were jockeying for power in this region. They were using their wealth and their military might to conquer and to occupy neighboring nations, to bring those people under subjection, to increase their wealth, to increase their power, to increase their influence in this part of the world. And Israel and Syria are seeing this, and they're like, let's form this alliance, this pact, so where we can defend ourselves against Assyria. And they begin to put pressure on this southern kingdom of Judah. Come join us. Come be a part of this alliance. Don't serve Yahweh anymore. Don't trust that Yahweh can help you against the Assyrians, but we can. Come come join us. Come be a part of what we're doing. And so Judah at this time was ruled by a king named Ahaz. And Ahaz is looking at this situation And he's trying to pick between the better of two evils. I've got this massive uh, nation of Assyria, this kingdom of Assyria, who is threatening our way of life. But I've also got this wicked and and, 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 uh, uh, rebellious alliance between the northern kingdom of Israel and Syria. And he's looking at both of these things. And Isaiah is coming to him and saying, trust Yahweh. Trust Yahweh the God that you know. Trust that he will protect. Trust that he will provide. But in the end, what does Ahaz do? He chooses not to align himself with Israel and Syria, but instead he says, I think we have a better chance if we align ourselves with Assyria. And that alliance backfires. It backfires. And what happens is that not only does that pit Judah against Israel and Syria, but now they also begin to experience the oppression of this kingdom that they thought was going to be their friend, thought was going to be their protection. They, Assyria begins to take advantage of Judah. Assyria begins to oppress Judah in ways where, in ways that they didn't expect, and it manifests itself in hunger and in fear and in distress and in anguish, constantly wondering, how long can we survive? How long can we hold out? How long will we be under the thumb of these oppressors? And Isaiah tells us, back up into chapter 8, Isaiah tells us that the people see this and they experience this, and they're angry at God. They're angry at Yahweh. They're angry at their king and their leader. Why did you get us into this? Why did you allow this to happen? They're angry at God. We thought we, that you loved us. We thought that you, we were your people and that you would take care of us. And in verse 19, Isaiah says this, And when they say to you, inquire of the mediums and, and, and the, the necromancers who chirp and mutter, should not a people inquire to their God? Should they inquire of the dead on behalf of the living? To the teaching and to the testimony, if they will not speak according to this word, is because they have no dawn. Instead of turning to God in the midst of this oppression, what do the people do? They turn to magic. They turn to superstition. They turn to people who claim that they can communicate with the dead. They, they look for wisdom. They look for help in all of these places other than God. And look here in verse 21. They will pass through the land greatly distressed and hungry. And when they were hungry, when they are hungry, they will be enraged and will speak contemptuously against their king and their God and turn their faces upward. And they will look to the earth, but behold distress and darkness, the gloom of anguish, and they will be thrust into thick darkness. That phrase, they look to the earth. In the midst of this darkness, instead of looking to God, they look to themselves. They look to their own resources. 
They look to their own leaders. They look to their own ability and say, maybe we can change our situation. Maybe we can get ourselves out of this darkness and out from under this oppression. If you read through the pages of Scripture, you will see this motif of darkness used over and over and over again. And when the writers of the scriptures use darkness, they often use it to describe two things, evil and ignorance. Evil and ignorance. Evil, grief, suffering, injustice. People, century after century, generation after generation, culture after culture, experiencing darkness. We experience the same evil and grief and suffering and justice in the 21st century that people did in the first century. The evil and the darkness that we see around us, but also the ignorance that we walk in year after year, generation after generation, that cuts across culture because no one is smart enough. No one knows enough to figure out How do we end this darkness? How do we stop evil? How do we overcome injustice? How do we end suffering? How can we not experience this grief anymore? Because time and time again, we continue to look to the world. We continue to think that our intellect will help us pierce this darkness and overcome the darkness. If we could just get more people around the world educated, if we could just get more information in their hands, things would get better. If we could just become more enlightened and think about our world in a different way than the previous generation thought, maybe things will get better. Maybe we need to think more strategically about these specific problems and figure out how we can address them how we can overcome them, how we can avoid experiencing these over and over and over again. And all of that is good, right? All of that is necessary. But we think with our intellect and with our knowledge and with our information, if we just had more of it, there would be less darkness. We look to innovation. And we think if we could bring our technology to bear, the advancements that we've made in in technology, we could end suffering. We could end disease. We could put an end to the grief that people experience around the world. We could end hunger. We could end these cultures where people are being oppressed over and over again. That's why you constantly have guys like Elon Musk and Bill Gates and Zuckerberg in the news. And what are they saying? They're trying to use their intellect. They're trying to use their ability to innovate. They're trying to use their vast resources to make a difference in this world, and that is good, and that is what they should be doing, and that is noble. But what we do as a people, what we've done as humanity year after year, century after century, generation after generation in all of our cultures is that we look to the earth and we say, this is enough. It's enough to educate people. It's enough to bring our technology to bear in good ways. It's enough. That's what we need. That's all we need. And yet we find ourselves in darkness. We find ourselves continuing to deal with these problems, continuing to experience evil, continuing to see people languishing under oppression and injustice. And it appeals to this idea that to overcome this darkness we live in, we need to release the light that we have inside of us, right? This time of year, we we see ads and commercials, and it's all about if we can just bring the light that we have inside of us, if we can just create a world of unity and peace and prosperity, everything will be okay. The light that you have, the light that I have, if we can just bring that to the world, maybe, just maybe, we can end this darkness that we live in. But look at what Isaiah says. And they will look to the earth, but behold distress and darkness, the gloom of anguish, 
and they will be thrust into pit darkness. Think about this. Christmas is actually the most unsentimental, most realistic way of looking at life. What we talk about during this season is the most realistic way for human beings to think about this life and the world that we live in. Last week, we talked about the fact that as followers of Jesus, we are thrust into a war, that we stand face to face with spiritual forces of evil and of darkness. And the encouragement and the challenge The exhortation that we are given over and over in Scripture is don't give up. Don't face this darkness and say there's no hope. There's no way that things can change. There's no way that we will ever experience anything different. Don't give up, but stand against it. Resist it. And then on the other hand, don't be naive. Don't be naive to think that we can overcome it on our own, that we can change, that we can make it better. Maybe try putting this on your Christmas card this year under your nice posed picture of your family, that like millisecond that you got your kids to like all smile at the same time and look at the camera or your dog or whatever, you know, under that nice little Christmas card. Why don't you put this? Yes, the world is this bad. It is really this dark, and we can't do anything about it. Merry Christmas from the barbers. Why don't you put that on your Christmas card? Because that is what this prophecy tells us. That is what the message of Christmas tells us. The people who walked in darkness, the people who still walk in darkness, but there's hope, right? Thank God there's hope. The people who walked in darkness, the people who still walk in dark, they have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them a light has shown. Notice what it doesn't say. It doesn't say, from them a light has come. It says, on A light has shone. The light that we need, the light that this world desperately needs, does not come from us. It comes from outside of us. And it is given to us. It's given to us. When Isaiah prophesies that that light will come to Galilee of the nations, he's saying that the region in this time, who is under the thumb of oppression, who has been thrust into this thick darkness and gloom and anguish and death, would be the place to first rejoice in the coming of the light. In Matthew chapter 4, verses 13 through 17, Matthew begins to talk about the ministry of Jesus in this way. He says, In leaving Nazareth, Jesus went and lived in Capernaum by the sea, in the territory of Zebulun and Naphtali, so that what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. The land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light. And for those dwelling in the region and shadow of death, on them a light has dawned. And from that time, Jesus began to preach, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. The promised light, the light that God's people had waited for, for years and years and years, that light had come through Jesus Christ. Let's read on in chapter 9. 
Isaiah goes on to say, you have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with the joy at harvest. For they are glad when they divide the spoil. For the yoke of his burden and the staff for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor you have broken as on the day of Midian. For every boot of the trampling warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. For unto us a child is born. To us a son is given. And the government shall be upon his shoulder. And his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of his peace there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts is given. A child is born. Jesus was real. Jesus was a human. Jesus lived a real life. A child is born, but also a son was given. A son of God. He was fully God and fully man. As Deb said, Emmanuel, God with us. God didn't say, you have to come to me. You have to make your way to me. You have to find me. Instead, because of his love and his mercy and his grace, he came to us. He came to When we read those words, mighty God, everlasting Father. When you read through the Gospels and the life of Jesus, you will see that there were only ever two reactions to Jesus. One was when people saw him and experienced him and heard him teach. They fell down in awe. They worshipped him. They recognized that they were in the presence of of someone who was completely different. They had never experienced anyone like him. This must be God. But on the other hand, there were people who saw Jesus and experienced Jesus and heard Jesus, and they were filled filled with fear. And they asked Jesus to leave because they were angry. They were afraid of him. Something about Jesus disgusted them and turned them away. What you don't see in the Gospels is a tepid, indifferent response to Jesus. People either fell down and worshiped or they turned their back. Jesus is mighty God. He rules forever like a gracious and generous and just father. We must serve him because he is God, because he is worthy of our lives. But he is also wonderful counselor and prince of peace. Listen to these words by uh, a woman named Dorothy Sayers, who is a British writer and author. She wrote that the incarnation means That for whatever reason, God chose to let us fall, to suffer, to be subject to sorrows and death. He has nonetheless had the honesty and the courage to take his own medicine. He can exact nothing from man that he has not exacted from himself. He himself has gone through the whole of human experience. From the trivial irritations of family life, the cramping restrictions of hard work, and the lack of money, to the worst horrors of pain and humiliation, defeat, despair, and death. He was born in poverty, suffered infinite pain, all for us, and felt it with his love. In a couple of weeks, we're going to look at Isaiah's prophecy in chapter 53. 
and we are going to see the God of the universe, the creator of everything that we see and experience, our creator, walk the same path that we walk in this life. And honestly, we would not trade our life as troubling as it may be for the life that Jesus experienced and the pain and the humiliation and the rejection and the death that he suffered. He is our wonderful counselor. He is the prince of peace. He knows us personally. He shoulders our grief and our pain. He is, his peaceful presence is real to us. And that's why he is wonderful. We are drawn to him. I was thinking about that this week, that oftentimes I have a hard time connecting when people talk about God and Jesus being beautiful. Have you heard people say that? That, that Jesus is, is beautiful, that God is, is, there's a beauty with God and with Jesus. And maybe that's just because I'm a man and I have problems with my emotions. But I was thinking about that this week. I was like, why is it? What makes God beautiful? What makes Jesus beautiful? And I was thinking about this. And I was like, it's because he is attractive. Like his life and who he is and his presence, the peaceful presence that he brings that is real, I'm drawn to that. I'm drawn to that in my own chaotic existence. I'm drawn to that in my neuroticism. I'm drawn to that when everything around me seems to be spinning out of control. I'm drawn to that when I cannot find a sense of peace on my own. I'm drawn to the presence of Jesus because I know that he is not only the most powerful God, that he is the creator God, but that he knows me and he loves me and he is with that's satisfying. That's satisfying. Mighty God, everlasting Father, we must serve you. Wonderful Counselor, Prince of Peace, we want to serve you. We want to serve a God like that. A God who is powerful, and yet a God who is loving. So when we talk about Jesus being the light of the world, what are we saying? We're saying that in Jesus, we have new life that replaces our spiritual death. That in Jesus, we receive truth that removes our spiritual blindness. And that in Jesus, we are drawn to a beauty that breaks our addictions to other things that promise us peace, that promise us security that promise us satisfaction and acceptance and affirmation, that promise us life. Jesus is a light for us when all other lights go out. Jesus is a light for you when every other light in your life has gone out. In Isaiah chapter 9, verse 7, He talks about this government, and of his peace there will be no end. His justice and his righteousness, he will uphold it, and he will establish it. He will reign in perfect justice and perfect righteousness for all eternity. Isaiah, this prophecy, tells us that this time of year that we celebrate is a season that should nudge us into anticipation that we should be nudged into anticipation a little bit more than we are. That the light of Jesus has dawned, but we don't yet fully see it. We get glimpses of this justice. We experience a taste of his righteousness. We see a glimpse of peace and the life that Jesus offered. But as we have seen in weeks past, we are encouraged to stay awake, to not get drowsy, to not get lethargic, to not just let this idea of Jesus become an idea, 
but to stay awake, to look forward to his return by serving him today. That when we are frustrated, when we are grieving, when we experience our life to be a constant struggle, that we look forward to the day when it won't be. We look forward to the day when we will experience this fully. And if you notice in verses 2 and in verses 3, what tense are the verbs? They're in past tense. They're in the past tense or the perfect tense, if you like to nerd out with grammar and the way we translate things. The perfect tense. And it was a literary style that the writers of the scriptures used that it was written in the past tense as if what will happen in the future has already happened. It was that sense of hope, that sense of confidence that these people had to cling to, that what they were being promised is as good as already done. The invitation for us this morning Have you ever gotten a gift from someone that completely overwhelmed you? I'm not talking about like, wow, this is, you know, something that I always wanted, you know, but a true gift. Maybe it was somebody who stepped in when you were experiencing a specific need and met that need. Maybe it was someone who came to you in a time of grief and despair and said, I just want to be with you and I want to help you. A need was met, a desire and a dream was made possible by someone else. And in that moment, you knew that this was not something that I could have done on my own. But somebody gave that to me. It's a blow to your pride, isn't it? It makes you realize that everything you want, everything you desire is not something that you can only bring about by yourself. Isaiah refers here in this prophecy to the day of Midian. And he's referring to a battle that took place in Judges chapter 7. A guy named Gideon was called to lead the people of God against this group of Midianites who were a people group neighboring to the people of God that were oppressing them, that were attacking them, that were causing them all kinds of anguish and grief. And God calls Gideon to lead the people of Israel against the Midianites, to defeat them. But if you've read this story, you will see that Gideon has this army of thousands. And he comes to the Lord and he says, I'm ready. We're ready to do this. And God looks at him and says, you've got too many men. Uh, Okay. So one by one, thousand by thousand, God decreases the army. No, still too many. How about now? Still too many. And finally, Gideon is left with an army of 300 men to go to battle and to go to war against an army of thousands. But God has a plan, and he says, this is what I want you to do. I want your 300 men to each have torches. And I want them to light those torches, and I want them to put the torches in a pot. And I want, to get, I want your men to also have trumpets and horns. I want you to go up above the camp of the Midianites and wait for my word. So they make their way to this camp. And they stand over this camp, and at the word of Gideon, they smash the pots, their light shining in the darkness. They blow their trumpets, and the Midianites jump up from their sleep, are so confused, they're scrambling, they're retreating. Thousands of men think that they are being invaded by a much bigger army, and they run away, and they are defeated. And it's a story that Isaiah is referring to, because Isaiah is saying this light that has come is totally from God. What Defeating the darkness has nothing to do with us, and it has everything to do with God. God did this. 
And there is no question about that. This light that has dawned is a gift of grace. It's a gift of grace to us. It's a gift that makes us swallow our pride and to accept who we really are, to accept that this world really is what it is, that we are so lost, that we are so incapable of changing ourselves, of changing this world. It is the realization that this season of Advent brings to us that I am not what I need. You are not what you need. We are not what this world ultimately needs. This season of Advent calls us to live in the reality of who we are and also the hope of what we have been given. And so I want to invite you this morning, if you are a believer in Jesus Christ, to come and to take a piece of bread, to dip it in the cup, to remember that Jesus has come, to proclaim to each other that he is coming back again, and to know that Jesus Christ hung on the cross in darkness. His father turning his back on him. Jesus hanging in darkness with your sin, with my sin, with the darkness of the world on him. Jesus experienced darkness so that you and I could experience the light of his life. So come this morning and begin this season of Advent, this season of anticipation by remembering Jesus and looking forward to his God, we thank you that these words written thousands and thousands of years ago bring us light and bring us hope today. Thank you that you are God with us, that you have not stayed distant, that you have not turned your back on us, that you have not looked at our situation and said, wow, that's way too difficult. I'm out of here. But you walk with us. You have walked before us. You know everything about us. And you alone have the power to transform our lives and to transform this world. And so, Lord, I pray that this season would, for each of us, bring us into a place where we humbly admit that I cannot do this on my own. That my family does not ultimately need me that my neighborhood does not ultimately need me, that this city and this world, that the, I do not have the light to pierce this darkness, but you do. And because of that, we can live in this community with hope. We can be a light, not our own light, but we can reflect the light that you have given us. And so I pray that you would make us a community of Christ followers who live in anticipation of your coming again by serving you today. To know that we will live in light, your light for eternity. That we can live in that light today. So bring others around us to watch you shine through us. In Jesus' name.